Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. <laughs> well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. Welcome back to the recording studio, Tracy. It's great to have you back here. Thanks, Matt. In the, uh, <laughs> the recording studio slash office slash used to be the nursery for two of our four kids the multi-purpose room the inner sanctum the inner sanctum where all the magic happens oh my god you are flattering you're already in you're not have to you're not to schmooze your way in so the blindfold was completely unnecessary (laughs) it's a little scary though tracy i noticed you brought somebody with you this time i did bring someone with me who is this striking young man this is my lovely husband uh, Mr. Andy. Hi, Andy. Hello. Welcome to the Intoxicated Podcast. Thank you. It's good to have you. Nice to be here. Yeah. Um, listeners, if, you, if you've been a long-time listener, then you have heard Tracy's episode. Or if you just go back from the beginning or just caught on to it somehow, you are on episode 61. This is episode mm. 221 that we're recording. That was over three years ago. Wow. Can you believe it? I can't. I'm an OG. You are. Oh, that's going to make somebody in Chicago mad. (laughs) She likes to call herself the OG. But you're the OG Tracy, that's for sure. Great to have you. Your original podcast number 61, the title was Tracy on Healing Her Broken Heart. It was a great episode. Uh, We recommend that if you like what you hear over the next hour or so, listener, go back and and you can hear the story in reverse that way. Hear the update, then go back and hear the original. Mm-hmm. That's how I like to get my media. There you, you go. Know, backwards. Solid. Yeah. Solid storytelling uh, strategy. I have to disagree. I would probably go back and listen to 61. I would stop this, go back and listen to 61, and then here we are. Yeah. Fast forward. Well, however you do it, we're glad you're here with us. Um, I have quoted... I think of all the podcast episodes that we have, I've probably quoted yours the most. You have one of the best one-liners ever. You talked about how for years in active addiction, you wanted Andy to be active and present and a participant in the family and family activities. And we should say, uh, we're good friends with you guys, and you are family people, family-oriented people. You have a wonderful family that we love and adore, and so... Family activities are really important to you, Tracy. Yes. And so wanting Andy to be fully present and active and participating in family activities is like a big deal for you. But then he got sober, and the line I love, turns out he has opinions. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) And I now know why that was uh, so, with some reflection and some time, I know why that's so triggering for me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. for sure, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. We will. We will. Uh, but that's really all you're going to hear if you go back to listen to episode 61. So just stay with us. Keep playing. <laughs> Keep playing this one. Um, expanding on that theme, you, well, you and Sherry are very close. We're all good buddies, but you and Sherry are very close. And you guys had had a conversation recently, and the, the kind of theme of that conversation, the takeaway, the buzzword, the, the one-liner was be careful what you wish for. And so that's what we're here to talk more about. And I want to hear more about that, but not quite yet. That's the tease, see? That's what we call it in pod lingo. Got it. That's the tease. (laughs) 
like I, like I'm pretending like I have any idea what I'm doing whatsoever. Um, but be careful what you wish for. Kind of like realizations and discoveries in active recovery. Because like we said, it's been over three years. You can't, you're a smart person. You're both smart people. You can't help but to have learned a lot in the last three years. Mm -hmm. So we want to hear about that. But before we get to the meat of it, uh, we want to get to know and welcome Andy a little bit. Good to have you, Andy. Well, thank you. Thank you. Let's start at the beginning. How did the drinking start for you? Was this a, like, you know, following in the footsteps of everyone in your family or your high school buddies or, you know, just kind of tell us how it started. It was part and parcel of, of growing up. I remember in the fourth grade going to somebody's house and their grandmother giving us each a glass of beer. And it was just part of the deal. Fourth grade, you fourth said? Fourth grade. Wow. Yeah. So, I know, what is that, 10 years old? That's like nine or 10 years old, yeah. yeah. Wow. And um, I didn't start drinking heavy at all right then. I'd drink occasionally. And then we were still the age where you could get 3-2 beer when you were 18. So, we definitely partook in that. For our non-Colorado listeners, 3-2 is 3.2% alcohol, right? Right. So you just have to go to the bathroom more, but yeah, same effect. <laughs> they also call it park beer around here because the is it was it Denver Parks and Rec? Yeah, yeah. Had a rule where you can't drink full beer in their parks, but you can drink three two beer in their parks. Right, right. Yeah, Wasn't is, three two beer what you could get in Wisconsin on Sundays? Or I thought it was a Colorado thing. I feel I don't know. It's more than Colorado. I, I feel like well, our listeners will know. I feel like it was something in the upper Midwest. When I came out here in college. Uh, on a spring break trip with like 12 other guys, we rented a condo and we went skiing, uh, and we ordered a whole keg of that and didn't know what we were doing. We just ordered a keg of Bud Light and they're like, do you want three, two? Or we're like, yeah, whatever, I guess. And so we were about halfway through the week, we realized we had this weak beer, but you know, between the altitude and the exhaustion, we couldn't tell the difference. I was going to say, it was probably pretty good because that could have been a really terrible... Yeah. Scenario for Three, somebody. Three, was probably on our side. Yeah, with you not being used to the altitude. All right, now you're well-informed listener. Three, two, and the history thereof. <laughs> so anyway, back to your story. Yeah, back to my story. So I went into the Army after high school, went to Germany. They had really good beer there. Mm. Got to, Heard that. Got to drink a lot of that. Um back to the States. Did you ever do Oktoberfest in Munich? No. No? Didn't do it. That was that was on my like drinking but That's like the one thing that I look back and I'm like, yeah, I wish I had squeezed that in before I got sober. I never did that either. But so you came yeah. back after your yeah. service. Thank you for your service, by the way. You're welcome. I uh, came back, went to college. Um, and the way I would typically drink was binge drinking on the, on the weekends or drink when there is a something to celebrate or something sad, you know, either way, it's yeah. time to drink. It's just, and it really didn't seem to become a problem until um, after we were married and I started to use it as a way to unwind and deal with stress and anxiety and um, Tracy started getting tired of it and um, told me, well, if, if you're going to, to drink, you can drink on Friday and Saturday night, and that's it. And 
most of the time I'd go by that, but often I wouldn't, and I'd drip into Sunday, and all of a sudden she'd see that, and it, it didn't go well. So ultimately, she uh, one day she she left, and uh, here's her mom at the house. I'm like, oh, what's going on here? And it, she uh, didn't talk to me for a few days, and then she said, well, I, I just can't have you drinking around here anymore, you know, can't um, live this way, and so... Was that when your mom was there to watch the kids, because you were you were yeah, uncomfortable had, with Andy being in charge of the kids because of the drinking? That This one in particular is I had had probably, I don't know, probably five years worth of medical stuff happening, oh, right. and this was a, a medical episode in which um, was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. And again, all of that information's on the last podcast. I don't know if we need to go through that. Um, but yeah, it was just kind of the neglect and heartbreak on my part of not having a partner that was there for me was finally the straw that broke my back. And so I took those two days to kind of figure out what I was going to do. Um, because we had had some conversations leading up to that, that, there would be a point in which I was done and I would have to leave. I wouldn't want to leave. I love him and I wouldn't want to do that, but um, I would have to. And then it kind of happened. You mentioned, Andy, that you started, like, were you conscious of the fact that you were using it to deal with stress and anxiety? Or is that like hindsight? I think to a, a certain extent I was, but it, it got to the point where my tolerance was so high, sure. it just wouldn't do the trick to make the, it just make the anxiety worse, you know, I'd drink enough to pass out and then wake up and feel terrible and go do it again. Mm-hmm. It was, um, and really I, I couldn't see how bad it was without perspective of looking back a few mm-hmm. years because... It took that long to actually figure it out. It's it's common, and I know that was the case for me, that you can you can feel the relief from drinking. And I appreciate what you said about the higher tolerance, so maybe you have to drink more to get that relief. But what I couldn't see is that the alcohol was also the cause. I thought the cause of the anxiety is work. The cause of the anxiety is that my relationship with my wife's terrible. I didn't put two and two together that the alcohol was, you know, my nervous system was a wreck and I wasn't managing stress in any way remotely responsible. So the alcohol was actually the cause too. Is that is that where the hindsight comes in for you? I think partially, but once I was finished with the, the alcohol and all the barriers are down, all of a sudden I've got to deal with reality day to day. Yeah. All the struggles in life and um, come to find out the other things I have going on, which actually is anxiety and depression, and so I've uh, got some therapy for that, but prior to that, I went out to the uh, the VA with Tracy, just trying to get some help with this drinking, and wasn't quite sure what that looked like, and, and the guy asked me, he says, well, do you want to get completely sober, or do you want to do like, I don't know what they call that now, uh, part-time or... Um, like teach you how to moderate? Yeah, moderate. There's a there's a word they use, but I said let's just try to to quit it 
altogether. Um, mostly I said that because I knew that's what Tracy would want. And uh, he said, well, why, why are you quitting? I, I said, well, uh, Tracy wants me to quit because I, I, I really didn't want to. Yeah. It's just my mind was not there yet. But um, I went ahead and, and started the process, and I, I'd go to their meetings two days a week that they had at the VA. And uh, they had a really good program there, group therapy, and did that for about three months. And um, it's called as the uh, the matrix model. It's based on Hazelden up in Minnesota. Sure. You know? And uh, at least for me, it, it it worked just great. But I hear that mostly people, when they, they stop drinking, if they don't stop for themselves, if they do it because of, of something else, it's probably not going to stick as often. I would, I just feel like I was fortunate to be able to carry on for five years so far. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, I've got more questions about that, but I also want to know, I remember when you were in that program, I remember having conversations with you, and, and you were complimentary of it, and you were getting a lot out of it. And as someone who never served, um, all I ever hear is what the press tells me about the VA, right? And so all I ever hear is negative. And so this was really literally... The first positive thing I've ever heard come out of the VA. And so I have since, you know, we've shared and I've met lots of people with military backgrounds who talk about pursuing sobriety. And I can I can think of many times where I've said, oh, you should check out what the VA has to offer. That matrix program that you talk about, is that is that the like nat- nationwide approach that they have? Or was that something local? Do you know? I, I believe it is nationwide. They call it the uh, intensive outpatient program. Okay. Um, some people, they, they actually take them inpatient for a period of time. To, right. But um, it seems to work really well, and it doesn't have the uh, dollar signs invo- involved like it does out in the private sector. Sure. Um, they've got one mission to try to get people to quit drinking, and it's effective for me. Was there, there was a group component of that too, oh, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, there's, let's see, Six or eight of us around the table regularly would go there. Have you stayed in contact with any of them? No. No? No. Okay. Um, but, but at the it, time, it was useful to not be alone on? It was useful. And you really get close to those guys and care about them and hope they're doing well. Um, remember that guy called me, was it Christmas? Christmas, Christmas uh, Eve. We're at her folks' house. Oh, yeah? He uh, seemed like he had to... Get something for his kid or, or something, but we he had needed some money. Yeah, I needed a little money, so I drove all the way down there and gave him a little money. Never saw him again. No. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was a thing to do. With it is amazing how yeah. how um, how those bonds are created through that mutual struggle. It doesn't have to be alcoholism or recovery. It can be whatever it is. And I'm right. talking to someone who's been in the military. So, God, you know about bonds way more than I do. Well, that's what I was going to also say was, I'm sure it was even more comforting being that you had this alcohol use disorder, also being at the VA. So people that have served and been in the military, there's, you know, because a lot of people don't understand the stress and pressure that happens in the military, and I know that there's a lot of drinking culture that happens in the military. I know, um, you know, we have a lot of um, people that we've met throughout the years that have a spouse, or they themselves have been in the military, and the alcohol culture there is just 
ridiculous. So did that, do you think that that kind of having that little bit of closer connection and that, you know, military piece with it being through the VA. That's sure that sacrifice kind of, kind of thing. Yeah. Do you think it kind of helped you guys bond a little closer and feel like you could open up more? Because, I mean, we've known you, but you're you're pretty quiet most of the time. But yeah. do you feel like that that kind of helped you open up because you had even something more in common? It did. Same type of issues and get to hear their stories. Mm-hmm. And, uh, just the way people get through when they're drinking, it, it Thinking back, it's kind of amazing because as much alcohol as they're consuming and still living a regular life and holding down a job and um, just the contortions that people have to do to, to stay in that. Mm. And and they will because they're um, addicted. You know, they, they need it just like food. Yeah. And in order to give up something like that, it, it's a struggle. It doesn't come overnight. Yeah. Well, that brings me back to when you, you talked about Leading up to your sobriety, Tracy asked you to stick to Friday and Saturdays. Um, so when you could see the writing was on the wall, and I think you said, you said, you know, the day of reckoning is coming. It's not here yet, but it's coming. Had you tried sobriety at any point during that, or were you trying to put rules around it and keep it in your life? I, I tried to cut back. I would... Uh... In the morning, I'd say, okay, I'm not going to drink anything tonight. Oh, the morning but, conversation. But by the there. time the, the afternoon, evening came around, it's a Friday night, I'm like, uh, I'm just going to grab mm-hmm. something real quick and yeah. head on home. But the, part of the problem with that with the family, it, it's so isolating because I didn't think about it quite so much at the time, but pretty much the drinking came first and the family came second during that period because even if I was with the family... My mind, I'm trying to figure out, okay, how am I going to get this other drink, you know, or am I going to get one over here, over there, and we'll have enough for later if I get too hammered so I don't have to go out and drive, you know, just yeah. all that kind of stuff is just that in the thought gymnastics. process. Yeah. And I think by the time that we had come to the point where where it was, you know, the ultimatum and the going to the VA, we'd been married for close to 20 years at that point. And he had had a pattern where he would kind of binge and then he'd have some self-awareness around it. And then he'd pull back. And sometimes he wouldn't drink for six months or eight months or a year. And then he'd start over. And then as we progressed through that 20 years, there's times when he could be sober or would, um, would get shorter mm-hmm. until there wasn't any. Mm-hmm. And, and it was just kind of weekend. a year-long cycle all the time, always. Well, I, that's what I was going to ask, too. Um, when you were talking about that, did you find... Because I know Matt had rules around it, and he was a Thursday night, Friday night, and Saturday night drinker. Then he started making Sundays. It started out with three days, because you had soccer Thursday. And then it was, like, Sundays, and I was like, I thought we were doing it, like, work and school day, if that's the next day you weren't going to drink, you know? Sundays sleeped in, but did you find it was hard to try to maintain your, your sobriety like during that, you know, Sunday through Thursday? And were that all you were thinking about? Just that? Yeah, Sunday in particular, um, because I'd have to work the next day and I usually have a little anxiety around that Sunday scariers, mm-hmm. whatever oh, they yeah. call it. And uh, I'd often be the one to fix breakfast and I'd been drinking the night before already I'm like well there's a couple beers in there I'll just go ahead and hair the dog it and just get going but the trouble is 
you start in the morning on Sunday and, and keep going, you know, on the down low throughout the day, somebody's going to notice. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. a big mystery. Hello, I'm somebody. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh... This is one of those times when we say it a lot. We wish it was TV instead of radio so you could see <laughs> Andy staring at Tracy. Somebody's going to notice. Not going to point any fingers, no. but it's you, Tracy. Yeah. <laughs> it's me. It's me. But for a long time, even though I noticed, I thought I was crazy that I would, you know, I didn't know what I was seeing because there was a little bit of covert mm-hmm. action happening sure. with it all. And I knew that he had promised he absolutely wouldn't drink on Sundays. He would contain it. But, you know. And did you ever think, oh, well, maybe it's just the hangover or maybe it's just the backside of the binge drinking or is this really him? Or the Sunday scary. Or that's coffee in his cup. I know that's coffee in his cup. He's drinking coffee. I'm looking at the coffee, but there was a little hair of the dog in the coffee. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, and then I would feel incredibly guilty for, you know, thinking that he wasn't keeping our deal when I had no hard evidence that he wasn't. Mm. And and so, yeah, we were like that for a few, quite a few You were feeling guilty that you had doubt. I was about, feeling guilty about that all that you had seen for almost 20 years. Yeah. 15 to 20 years, but you were feeling guilty by doubting him. Yeah. Hmm. Guilt is woven into all these stories. We just did a follow up yeah. podcast with Barbara, who sadly lost her husband. Well, it was her ex husband who yeah. passed away. D- directly, directly related to his alcohol consumption and inability to stay sober. And she feels guilty, and that was a big topic of her podcast. So there's a lot of counterintuitive stuff to this, you know. And so if you're listening to this and you haven't experienced any part of it yourself firsthand, you're going, what? Yeah. What? She felt guilty for being right Mm. and not knowing it? Like, I don't understand, but we understand and our listeners I mean, I felt guilty for not wanting to be close to him or be around him, even if he wasn't drinking that day. It was like, you know... I felt guilty just because I was like, who did I marry? What did I do? Yeah. So, Andy, so you were limiting your drinking. You were trying to kind of stay to the agreement, sometimes making it, sometimes not. Very, very familiar with that scenario. A lot of mental gymnastics goes into trying to maintain that. But then, you know, the day of reckoning comes and you commit to sobriety. Have you had any relapses? No. Is that something you take a lot of pride in? Not really. I just think that if I did have a relapse, it would be really bad, and I wouldn't want to have to deal with that. So I'm just like, nope. Does the fear of relapsing and then all that work that you'd have to do to get back to the sobriety, is that scary? Is that something I don't know if if it's the work or just the the shame that I would feel for breaking the the sobriety. Um, But I... You know, I put so much effort into it all that time. It's like, well, if you if you lose that for even a day, it's like, well, you're kind of starting over. Yeah. Because um, you, you've already found that you still have a taste for it. You know, you still, it's something you might do. And I think it's easier just not to go there. Well, and it, it it's like, you know, pouring gas on a, on a little spark as far as that neurotransmitter stuff in our brains, like our brains are 
they remember right they got a bookmark right where we left off and relapses are so dangerous because um you'll pick back right up where you left off and so it is hard to quit again as someone who relapsed for pretty much 10 solid years back and forth between sobriety and drinking um i'm very proud of you for never having had any relapses i think that's really really commendable mm-hmm. and uh, uh, thank you i gotta say i always expected my expectation was there was going to be a relapse or two mm-hmm. and so i had prepared in my own mind to have some grace around that but also kind of tentative watching what would happen because I might still need to walk out the door mm-hmm. if it didn't stick. But I, I, it surprised me that he never relapsed. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I can add it to the list of things I feel guilty about now, I guess. <laughs> well. well, and I think that so many programs, too, they'll often say, you know, relapse is a part of the sobriety journey. You know, so they make it almost allowable or okay or, you know, to just, I think, so then you have lower expectations. But, you know, we've learned just from things that we've heard of, heard from other specialists that, like, relapses are actually really detrimental to the sobriety simply because you are making it like, oh, look, I relapsed, but I stopped. So they that just becomes your, like, trained pattern. The relapse was built into your sobriety plan. Yeah. Amber Hollingsworth taught us that From good friend the of the down. podcast yeah. the shovel down youtube channel yeah so okay so you referenced this a little bit andy but i want to go back to it you said you quit basically because of the ultimatum you quit because you didn't want to lose your family but you also i heard in that that you recognize that that's kind of a slippery slope to be quitting for someone else right you're how far into sobriety now five years five years into sobriety are you still only not drinking for Tracy and your kids, or have there have other reasons come into it? Well, I don't, I don't crave it anymore. So I, I'm just, it's not part of my life. I uh, like to say it's all for Tracy and the kids, but it's it's not something I do anymore. It just, but it took such a long time to get there. I remember driving up Colfax, going to the VA, and seeing Dave's Pale Ale outside the liquor store and all these signs, and just going, oh. It was just, um, it's like I, I lost a, a good friend yeah. you know, mm-hmm. in the alcohol and uh, wasn't coming back. So, ha- Okay, let me ask that in a different way. So you don't crave it, but what other, are there other benefits that you find to sobriety besides the fact that you still have your family to go home to? Oh, for sure. Yeah, I can sit and read a book or read the paper or um, any kind of intellectual things that take some concentration whereas if I had a drink there and say oh I'm just going to pick this up and start reading it pretty soon I'm I'm drinking I'm not reading anymore it's just easier to throw on a podcast or the radio or whatever mm-hmm. something that I don't have to think too much mm-hmm. so I, I appreciate that and I'm able to sleep much better I used to um, feel better That's physically. Mm-hmm. That's great. Do you find that you like stress from work and things like that? Oh or? yeah, talk about the stress and anxiety. Oh yeah, about that yeah. Well, that's um, where I've gotten some help at the VA too. You know that 
you listen to that first podcast, I wasn't involved in that one. I wasn't ready to look very close at this this whole pattern of behavior that affected the whole family. But it's about a year and a half ago I started going to therapy at the VA and I'd go every two weeks. And it's it's really helped me out. Just having a third party person there able to help me decipher some of the thoughts that I have and mm-hmm. ways to proceed and really good. Yeah. That's great. That's great. Well, I know Matt's stress level management changed after, you know, it was a while. It wasn't immediate in sobriety. And I would say probably like 18 months, like you were able to kind of manage stress and worry a little bit more. Um, and, and it wasn't so intense. Like you, you know, everything seemed to be like, like your nerve endings were just on the edge of your skin. And so any little stressor, it would kind of blow up. And I noticed that that kind of calmed down a little bit. And so things that were stressful in our life, he was able to kind of regulate and himself and his emotions and it didn't become such a big deal. Did you find that that helped? Because I know you have a position where you like oversee people. Mm-hmm. And so I know working with people sometimes can be stressful. People suck sometimes. <laughs> I didn't want to go there. But I mean, you yeah. find Matt that like... Said it. Matt said it. Yeah. Did you find that like those sort of scenarios are just a little bit easier to manage? And oh. Like, therapy? And... Most definitely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Most definitely. And even with our marriage, you know, and talking to a therapist and um, start talking about marriage counseling that the VA had on offer too. So we've just started that recently, which is... Um, Terrifying. Heavy lifting for... <laughs> this is why we're here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but it's... It, I think it's good to have somebody that's not so personally involved in the relationship to kind of see how things are from, from the outside, from a perspective, professional perspective. You know, it's, it's a field they work in. You know, They deal with couples and try to figure things out and give advice. So yeah. it's, it's good. Great perspective. Andy and I, for our listeners, we're buddies. We've talked about this. We we go on walks together um, more frequently before, but we recently uh, took a walk around the park again, and I thoroughly enjoy that. I always enjoy our walks and talks. Uh, Sherry and Tracy, you guys are quite fond of each other, quite close. And so I have a question for you, Sherry. Um, I know, and our listeners know, how fiercely loyal you are <laughs> to people that you are fond of and feel close to. So, you know, um, your fe- fierce loyalty uh, is really on display when you see that people that you love are hurt. So do you have any um, concerns or are you nervous about doing this podcast given your relationship with Tracy and... Um, you know, well, your, your defensive nature. <laughs> well, I'm going to just say, I think that if this had happened two years ago, uh-huh. uh, you know, 18 months ago even, perhaps, I probably would feel a little bit, like, defensive or defending Tracy. But I see the work that Andy has started, and I feel like that has taken on a different turn. 
I feel like when I am feeling protective of my pride, I'm a Leo and I really... Your pride, like your lion pride. Yes, my lion pride. Like I'm a Leo and I really have those sort of, you know, this is my, these are my people, you know, and I'm going to be fierce for them. When I see that... Like, their partners aren't really stepping up. I mean, it it takes a while. I mean, there's a lot of shit that everybody has to deal with. Like, childhood trauma, you know, young adulthood trauma. Trauma that happens in our adulthood just in general. And and I see the work that Andy is doing and putting in. It has made me feel so much more relieved. And it makes me feel so much happier. But I still sometimes throw to Tracy, like question when she's struggling with a feeling I'm like why do you take ownership of this feeling this is just part of the recovery process the healing process it happens things happen you know so I would say now I'm not 18 months or later maybe even a year I would probably be a little worried that I would be fiercely defensive I just think it's an important perspective for our listeners to understand because um Andy, you mentioned that in couples counseling, one of the things you like about that is you've got a neutral, professional observer that's guiding the process. And, you know, I think we're far from professional, but we're pretty neutral usually, you Mm -hmm. and I, when we interview people. But this is different. This is different because we have long-standing relationships. Um, I mean, closeness recently, in recent years, bonded together because of this mutual battle but we've known each other since our kids started elementary school and we got kids going to college now so um or on their you know in in and on their way to college so uh yeah so it's been a long time and it's this is far from just an interview with a couple of people whose stories we took an interest in yeah it's more than that like when you know i had known tracy and actually we just joked about this i remember like knowing her from the pta at school and i would be like geez before i actually knew her i'd be like who is this woman she's constantly asking us to do stuff god just leave us alone and let us be parents and let them be teachers why do we have to have this big association you are a pretty awesome active <coughs> yes active she was parent. great for fundraising great. and just making sure all the bases were covered but when when you know when i had known her i think um You know, we were walking, we were being friends in the playground, like, um, two of our kids became really good friends. And then, you know, when your story came out, she happened to be on the email and you told her and then she reached out to me and, and just knowing the life that your family was, I was so heartbroken for what was going on in your family and shocked. Of course I was shocked because, you know, I didn't realize how much was you know, that my story was so relatable. Andy alluded to all these people and all the gymnastics they go through with keeping their drinking in their lives. And then they're still going to work and making it. And, you know, financially they're doing it. So I was just flabbergasted and I knew how much was going on in your family. And I was so fired up and I was just, I had so much emotions. I just sat and cried and sat and cried. So then when, um, Tracy said that Andy was going to work on sobriety. I'm not saying I was reluctant at all, but I was just holding my breath. Like, oh, God, please don't let him relapse. Please, you know, just all these things. I'm, And it feels so weird to, like, sit here and tell you guys this, that I was, the, I was a spectator, but I was so emotionally invested 
in making sure that sobriety stuck and that you guys became healthy and healed. And it just makes me so happy that you're here and that you're able to work on this together and that you've come to that crossroads because that is what I've wanted since we sat at that coffee shop. Well, and we are here today because of the two of you. Our stories are linked. I think if Matt had never been honest about his struggles with sobriety and did the article and sent the email and came up with the term, um, you know, functional alcoholism, I wouldn't have thought to look at Eric's behavior in that way, that it was problematic because he was still getting up and going to work and all the things. I don't know if I would have questioned him or made boundaries that led to his sobriety. And I sure as heck wouldn't have the support system. It took me so long to work up the courage that day to talk to you in the coffee shop because we hadn't reached that level of friendship. Mm -hmm. We're still kind of surface level friends. Mm -hmm. And the support that you've provided me and then all of the work that you've done through Echoes and supporting people that are struggling with addiction has just been that boost before. But neither one of us would be sitting here, I don't think, in the same way without you guys. So we're linked together in that way. Couldn't agree more. That's such a beautiful sentiment. And back to the topic of guilt um, that's logical or illogical. All I could hear when you were saying that and describing a bond that is it's truly remarkable and truly accurate the way you described it. All I could think is, I wonder if Andy just realized that I'm the reason he doesn't get to drink anymore. <laughs> I didn't think of that till you said it. But... No, no, me neither. <laughs> but thank you. <laughs> that did it. That, I don't know about that. Yes, I yeah. Well, thank you for saying that. And uh, the feeling is very mutual. We are linked together, no question. Um... Andy, back to you. I hope you enjoyed that brief respite from the hot seat, but you're back <laughs> on it now. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I think one of the many things that you and I have in common, I, if I understand correctly, like me, you were not a believer in therapy, therapy. You were kind of a rejecter of therapy like I was until you became an embracer of therapy. Uh, you've had good experiences both with individual and now you're talking about couples counseling. Mm-hmm. Um is is that accurate? Did you have to make that switch from, why would I ever want to sit and talk to somebody about my problems, to, hey, this is kind of helpful? I really did. Because um, the experience I had when Tracy had a therapist, I felt like, dang, her and her therapist were ganging up on me. Yeah. Coming up with all these things to do to <laughs> make my life have problems. And uh, I wasn't really too happy about that. But after a while, I... I figured it out that it it just makes so much sense um but i think for the stage that i was in at the time i uh i just couldn't that was the 80s by the way just in case your listeners were wondering (laughs) did you not see the sign when we entered the studio to silence all devices The ringer's off and not the alarm, so yeah. sorry about that. No. Was that your alarm to remind you to get the hell out of your office? <laughs> <laughs> I sat here long enough. See, uh, time's up. That was his uh, I quit in time. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, was the experience at the VA where you had that group that you could talk to, be honest with, and gain some benefit from them, was that part of 
the kind of light bulb that said, hey, maybe therapy's not a bad thing either. Well, actually, it, it didn't start very well at the VA. The, the first therapist they gave me, um, he and I didn't really connect okay. very well. And so after that, I, I dropped out of it for, um, shoot, probably four or five years before I went back to see another therapist. So that's not, so I was referring to the Matrix program, that group, yeah. but you're talking about an individual therapist at yeah, the VA that yeah, didn't work it, out. So see the, let me see, when was that? The Matrix was 2018, and it was prior to that where I was, I was trying to get some therapy and some help, mm-hmm. while I was still actively drinking, which that didn't work very well either, um, but just... The thing about a therapist, it's got to be somebody that you can de- develop a trust with yeah. and just share things and get the feedback and um, just that particular one. It, it, it wasn't for me, um, but eventually I was at my primary care doctor there and I, uh, I told her that I was kind of thinking I might need some therapy and she had somebody right across the hall that could start me on that. And so I got there and then... Um, I saw him for about, I think, six months, and then the BA is really um, short-staffed, so they sent me outside the VA, and um, I've got this therapist now that she is, she used to work for the VA, and she's just been great, really turned a lot of things around in my life, so uh, nothing but gratitude for having that. Yeah. Well, and that's just a reminder that, you know, you have to keep looking. If you feel like you're not connecting with your therapist, find somebody else because you're going to find somebody that you're going to click with. And that's that's the whole point is to find somebody that's going to help you and listen to you and you have a trust and a bond with because that's the only way you can be vulnerable and open and they can really hear you. So. Yeah, absolutely. I just can't, um, I think about, the similarities in our stories and that's one that really stands out the uh just kind of reluctance about talking about it until you see the benefits of talking about it now here we're talking about it in this public setting (laughs) speaking of talking about it in this public setting since you were here last tracy Mm. you know not only has time passed and water gone under the bridge but you've done a lot of work and you have changed yourself and so Back to the topic or the uh, title of the podcast, Be Careful What You Wish For. Can you talk a little bit about what that means? What does that mean for you? Well, uh, it started, it was kind of a chuckle that I had with Sherry when we were walking the park one day. And it was, you know, when we walk the park, we talk about everything from kids stuff to, you know, frustrations with husbands. That happens a lot. Sorry, Sorry, you're not excluded. (laughs) The both of you. What? (laughs) things going on in life is silly things or serious things and so um talking to her about starting couples therapy which we've recently in the last month or so started and it at the time that i quit the when i quit echoes quit doing echoes when i did the podcast was three or four years ago and I just felt from a relationship point of view, even though Eric was sober, our relationship was stuck because there was not really a willingness or an ability on his part 
to do any kind of repair work as a couple. Um, you know, if I would want to talk about things, I would, I would kind of be told that, you know, we don't dredge up the past, we're just moving forward. And I think he had an incredible amount of shame and guilt that he was trying to deal with in kind of new sobriety. And so I kind of let it go, but it, it caused, you know, it made me feel like even though my partner was, was sober and was present, and yes, now had opinions about things. <laughs> um, it wasn't like I felt any more cared for. It's not that I didn't feel that sense of no loneliness that I had had um, for the 20 years prior when he wasn't engaged with the family because of the drinking. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. And it just continued to kind of fester but I felt stuck and staying staying stuck and not having a partner that's willing to move forward with you what I had to do was kind of disengage so it's at the same level you do with an alcoholic you can't do anything about and I feel like that's kind of where we've been for a portion of the last five years while he's been sober particularly probably the last two you think is there's been this disengaging because there's no traction that can be made and you know like going in to ask him to get sober you know you come to a pain threshold and for us for me it was a couple of months ago when we had um when we haven't we had an incident with our our daughter in which she left the country to go see a boyfriend overseas and Eric had to go and retrieve her. So while she's gone, I'm feeling, I can't know, believe you made that into a one sentence story. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that's pretty <laughs> The podcast is only so long. I know. I know. And that's, we certainly aren't going to pry into that. Yeah, no, that's I just couldn't believe that could be summarized hour. into one sentence. That's there amazing. The time, Take notes, Nat. The yeah. time when he was gone <laughs> made me kind of realize how distant we were and how much trouble we were in. And this is another conversation walking the park with Sherry. And that is, I didn't miss him. It was actually much easier with him kind of out of the house. There was this lessening sense of anxiety. There wasn't um, because he wasn't in the home. And then he got home and we had a conversation and I, I didn't like how it went, and I was hurt for a couple days after that conversation. And when I talked to him about it, he said, oh, I was joking. I didn't really mean it. And that's when I said, you know what, let's check, look in. I asked one more time. I said, let's look into couples therapy. Mm -hmm. Because the pain that I was in, the disconnect that I was in, was so great, I had to ask one more time. So Andy set up through the VA to go in for couples therapy. And we started this, you know, within the last month. Um, and I'm realizing <laughs> we go in in the second appointments that usually set up our individual appointments. And this poor therapist gives me a reason. She, she says, now I want you to answer some questions and, and talk to me about how you're feeling. And it's like she opens Pandora's box. Mm -hmm. I don't even know what I said to this woman. I think she's low-level terrified of me because it was a fire hose of word vomit. Mm -hmm. 
mm. of every neglectful, painful feeling I have in regards to a relationship. Um, and she kind of looked exhausted at the end of the intake of the appointment. <laughs> and it made me kind of do some self-reflection uh, that a lot of that is my stuff. Mm that I've brought into the relationship that I'm taking into couples therapy. Yes, Sherry has a question. Well, I also say, like, when you are, like, we're not going to talk about the past, we're moving forward, you can't really go back and revisit some of the incidences, and we call that, like, resentment processing. So we didn't do couples therapy, and we had to wait for a good time when we were both in a good place, and we made these... We had these scheduled talks where we had this resentment processing. And so if you have a partner who is not interested in that and and you're using all the words except you had these resentments, so you were stuck because here you were stuck with these feelings that weren't going to see any resolution with your partner and because you can't go to Andy because Andy's like, I don't want to revisit the past. Let's just move forward. And that's not uncommon at all. Not at all. But so you, then when you do have somebody who is a professional, you are going to just word vomit all over them because you have all this stuff. And I've told Matt, I said, what did I, with the term I use, it was like an accumulation. Like I never just compartmentalize things and put them on a box, you know, in a box and on a shelf. And that's one incident. That's what alcoholics are really good for. Mine was just an accumulation. And it was like I had Santa's sack full of all this shit. That just crammed in there every little incident, all the big incidences in boxes. And then you just landed on somebody's feet. I mean, hopefully she has probably seen that before. And you don't think you're the only one that's done that and shocked her. I can't imagine that they haven't had that before. Well, thank you for saying that. But that's Mm -hmm. part of what we were talking about in the park when we were walking, right? And the be careful of what you wish for is now Pandora, you know, Pandora's opened the box the Santa's sack of junk is out there, and we have to sort through it. And mm-hmm. so the incredible amount of work it's going to take to heal the relationship is what the joke was made about. Be careful what you mm-hmm. wished for, because now it's here. And I feel like we've been together for 30 years. That's a lot of stuff to sort through, and it's a lot of hard, it's going to be a lot of hard work. And it's also going to be a huge mirror to some of the things that are individual that need work on. I mean, we talk about now he's got opinions that he's sober. That's, you know, my anxiety over the power shift dynamic. And I know that's why a lot of um, of spouses kind of sabotage their partner's sobriety, right? Because that power shift feels so yucky to them. Uh, the change in power dynamic, um, issues with being vulnerability, with vulnerability and trusting. Um, people are way buried back in childhood. And that's got to be kind of, for me, an yeah. element of it. That's going to be picked apart mm-hmm. and dealt with on an individual web level for me to really be able to move on with Andy, to move up. And so that's <laughs> just... Um, where we are is better than where we were, but we still feel like we're standing at the bottom of the mountain and we have to climb it. So, um, you know, that's, that's our process. I'm not saying it's pretty. I'm not saying we have all the answers, 
But that's kind of where we are now since we saw you last. Yeah. Better than where we were. It's still a ways to go, I think. Well, do you have, like, optimism and hope that now that you you can parcel out what was brought into the relationship from each of you with from childhood and your own, you know, personality quirks or anxiety or character traits and things like things that you were just born with but do you have like hope and you know like a feeling that yeah it's gonna be a lot of work but you do have a partner in each other to like bounce off the ideas and also I'm gonna just add another question like do you feel like I'm, I'm taking a lot of cues from Matt apparently or do you feel like because you feel like now, maybe, yes, you can't always be vulnerable, but you see that the reactions of one another aren't going to be quite as dramatic or shutting down. So you're able to, like, kind of put forth these concerns and questions. Yeah, there's there's some stuff to work through there. I feel like I need to, from an emotional level, I need more experience with Andy as being trustworthy before some of that happens. There's some resentments that I know I have to work on myself. Like, <laughs> I, a couple, of, a couple of months ago, decided to start buying myself flowers because they were pretty and I wanted to do this for myself. And after a couple of weeks, Andy noticed. And he said, why are you buying yourself flowers? And I said, well, because they're pretty and I like them and I've been listening to Miley Cyrus. So I can <laughs> buy myself flowers, right? Um, and... And he really felt like that was something that a partner should do. So a few weeks later, he bought me flowers. This is a lovely, wonderful gesture I would have loved to, him to do, you know. Uh, and it really kind of pissed me off. Mm -hmm. So I need to get into what that is, you know, about and pull it apart and see. Um well, that's, I think, you know, that's like one of those simple sort of resentments. Like, you could have been buying me flowers for the last 29 years, you know? And then once you start to do something for yourself. But I think that's a part where you have to, like, kind of be more open about things that you like. Because I'm sure, like, Matt and I have been, I had been really closed off to Matt. So I wouldn't share parts of myself with him, like, music that I liked. or Because, yeah, I don't know, it wasn't too long ago. You're like, why are you listening to that? I've never heard you listen to that. And I'm like... I just want to listen to it. It makes me think of, like, my college days or whatever. I think it was on Thanksgiving. And, you know, but I'm like, would I have told that to drunk Matt? No, because then for him, it probably would have thought, oh, she's thinking of college days. Let's party it up. Or, you know, I don't know what you would have been thinking. But, you know, now that you're sober and you're safe and trustworthy, I can open up those parts of myself. I'm sorry, I missed all of that, Sherry, because now all I can think of is, was it Barry Manilow or Neil Diamond with Barbara Streisand singing You Don't Buy Me Flowers anymore? Does anyone know? I you don't, don't know. Buy you don't buy me flowers anymore. I don't know. It's, it's Barbara Streisand. <laughs> so why are we always karaoke involved here? <laughs> we always do this on this podcast. We think of something, and then we never no. know the answer. All I can think of now. You don't bring me flowers anymore. You don't buy me flowers. I think it's bring me flowers. All right. Well, we'll look it up. Well, I think to your question, Matt, there is hope. I am not going to give up on 30 years together. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you feel as hopeful about it. <laughs> no way. It's still hopeful. It's, uh, 
kind of got to the point where we we're more like roommates than husband and wife. You know, we have kids to raise and bills to pay and passing each other in the house and cordial and everything, but it just it wasn't like it could be. It wasn't like it was in the early days for sure. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about the, because you've done so much work, individual, couples therapy, and just time. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think we can overstate how important the passing of time is in the recovery process because no matter how um, hopeful or willing to do the work or whatever, you or I both might have been five years ago, um, you just don't have the experiences that you've had and that takes time. So putting that into the equation as well, how do you feel now about this idea of revisiting the past um, and this what Sherry called, and, and I call it the same thing, this resentment processing? Do you see value in it? I do. I do. It's um, it's not easy work, though. It brings no. up that, that whole shame thing again, but it's um, important mm-hmm. to try to cover it and talk about it certain things I mean memories don't go away on their own and they're still there regardless whether you process them or not but it's just how you deal with it as as time goes on Mm -hmm. and I think sitting in the seat three years ago his stance was that that wasn't I think this is a direct quote new age bullshit I think that was the direct quote. I have said that before, too. Yes, yes. I still say that. I resemble that that remark. I still say that about some stuff that I read in the Elven Journal. It's hippy-dippy stuff is my comment, but I get it. Also, I just want to, like, throw out there to our listeners, too, like, resentment processing isn't where the sober partner unloads on the... um, the alcoholic. alcoholic. I mean, it goes both ways. There have been things that Matt has brought to me that has been a resentment that he's carried. You know, things that are hurting him, and I have to sit and take, you know, and listen to it. And I know that Tracy, you're kind of like that. It's like it's also like, you know, what parts and pieces need to be parceled out, and what hurts, and what things have I made Matt feel shameful for? You know, like about our relationship and our romantic life, because you know we were. We weren't just like roommates, but it was definitely a one-way street. <clears throat> so there were things that I made you feel bad about for asking. Like an intimacy was one of those scenarios. So there were things that I had to sit and listen with. Um, or things that I've said that you remember. Like, you know, we all think, oh, they're drunk. I can say anything. But sometimes there you have a memory of what you've said. Like... Some things that I've said to you that's been pretty cruel when we were fighting while you were drunk. So, yeah, it, I mean, it definitely goes both ways, um, and it's boy, it is hard work. So, totally relate to what you're saying, what you're both saying about you're embarking on something. Be careful what you wish for because it's it's hard work. It's hard work. One thing I want to come back to that I want to be I want to be really clear about, Tracy. You said. That through, you know, the the unloading on the therapist and opening of Pandora's box, you have recognized that there's stuff in there that's for you, for you to work through mm. as well. I want to be clear because in alcoholic relationships, there's very, very typically a lot of gaslighting. 
Right. We alcoholics, when we're still in active addiction especially, we want to say things like, Hey, Sherry, you grew up with a father who was an alcoholic and a mother who got divorced twice. So all these relationship issues we have, this is all on you. This isn't me. I'm drinking like a normal person. Yes, I drink to unwind and de-stress at the end of the day, but that's what all guys do. You're the one with the problem. You're not suggesting that your issues are the reason that Andy drank and eventually drank too much, are you? No. No, I think I think looking at some of the issues are why I married Andy to begin with, why we selected each other. I mean, we we both have some childhood trauma which meant that we were made for each other in whatever you know to come together and be married because we didn't challenge some of the tougher parts of that childhood trauma so there's that component of it and even on Andy's worst day he was never cruel to me we never argued he never my feeling crazy when the drinking was happening or him saying things like that, um, that I was saying things that weren't there, that I was projecting because of my past, none of that was ever said. His form, preferred form of making me feel crazy was to go quiet and shut down. Mm -hmm. And then I could assume or not assume, whatever. But that kind of damage in our relationship never really existed. What I have to work on to be open and trusting and vulnerable to move forward with our relationship is truly mine. Um, I think there's, you know, codependency, pro-dependency, whatever you want to call it, there's some component of that. I'm also a two on the Instagram, which means I'm in personality-wise, a caring, nurturing person, that part's part of my personality. I'm never going to think that that's a bad thing. No. But they're all kind of intermingled. There's some comorbidities there. You mix that in with childhood trauma. And there's a reason why. That's the reason why the blockade to why I'm not full force into this couples counseling. It's, it's, it's work that I have to do. So at the same time we're doing this couple's work, I'm going to be doing some really intensive, intensive individual work. Was this surprising to you? It was very surprising because I thought the issues as a couple was all about the issues between us and about, you know, Andy's drinking and how that had damaged the relationship. But I don't think it is. There's so many comorbidities that go with addiction mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I think you know as you start dealing with them peeling them away one by one you see things you didn't see before mm -hmm. um, and to be fair it's, it's I'm very proud of Andy and his, sob his sobriety for five years it's a huge deal um, the fact that he chose to get sober the fact that he stuck to it takes some intense fortitude. Um, and even though it's five years and there's been some damage done in those five years, he's here. He's ready to do this hard work. And I got to give him a lot of credit.
for that as well, even though it's been five years. <laughs> yeah. Well, I give you both a lot of credit. It is, you know, this podcast will be released in December. So in the Christmas spirit, I have to quote my favorite Christmas movie, Christmas Vacation, when I say that, Andy, when I heard that you were willing to sit down and do this, I thought, if I woke up in the morning with my head sewn to the carpet, I wouldn't be more surprised than to hear that you were willing and, and eager to do this. So a little, uh, little Clark a little W Clark, there. Clark, Clark, Clark W when he sees Cousin Eddie for the first time. So, you but, know, when we create it, come back in three more years, assuming you're still doing this, we'll see where we are then. Yeah. yeah. Well, the nice thing is we'll get to know how things are going because you're here. And our friends. And we walk in the park. Yeah. So you'll know all the <laughs> yeah. things. Well, and I just, and also, just another thing for our listeners, alcohol doesn't just change the alcoholic. Yeah. It changes the whole family dynamic, and especially the spouse. So that even, you know, when Andy would go quiet, and we have a lot of our partners that we hear that go quiet and, and don't confront you know, Matt was not ever like that. He, if he had a point to make, he was going to follow me around the house until I just relented and agreed. So I learned very early on, or very probably a little too late in the drinking days, but just to agree and appease to shut up. And we have a lot of people who have that opposite. So it's no wonder that you're having a hard time opening up and being almost like skeptical of the couples counseling because you're like well how much is he really gonna say there and is he really gonna be that honest and open and vulnerable and I'm just gonna word vomit all the time and look like I'm just the crazy person to the therapist so you know I've just kind of learned that my process is messy you can tell from this podcast that my processes are messy and that's okay Mm -hmm. you know sometimes you don't get anywhere unless you make a mess oh yeah yeah, we often say that we're both verbal processors, and oftentimes in Mac, and you can attest to this. Sometimes I start in one way, and then I've worked my way 20 <laughs> minutes later to like a different result, but it's just, you know, an open process. It's called an open process. And you guys are both lucky that we pre process at the park. We pre process. We pre process verbally yeah. before we ever talk to you, but. I'm sure you feel, you can kind of feel the vibe that we're winding up here. So you're probably not expecting this, but I got one more zinger for you, Andy. Sure, go. Do you, uh, do you, do you feel yourself going quiet? And is that still the go-to? Or do you feel like, has, has that changed at all? Well, the way I was raised, um, I used to be quite the hyper child. And it didn't take too long for me to get shut down by the father figure um, to keep my mouth shut and my ears and eyes open. Yeah. And uh, I took that to heart and been using it ever since in all different facets of my life. So it's um, part and parcel of my personality, I guess. Isn't it amazing, though, how much how much what happens in the first whatever 10 years or so of our lives is going to be with us for the rest of our lives. I'll tell you what. It all goes back to that. Yeah. That's where you always end up. So your list of things you're working on, it, it goes back to that too. Oh yeah, it does. 
Yeah. Same same with us. Sometimes the work for Sherry and I is figuring out, you know, when something's off or when there's something that we've got to work through. Okay, is this did this come out during my drinking days? Is this, is this me? Is this, you know, we're big on blame the alcohol. Is this, can we blame the alcohol for this? Or did we both, did I carry a piece of this in? Or did you carry a piece of this in? Mm -hmm. So talk about messy. I mean, I think you talk about how you are a messy processor or your process. I think it's always messy. I don't know that there's any other way to do it. Yeah, and I don't think that we're honest with that with each other. You have these beautiful wrapped up, you know, speakers or books that are at the end of the process. You don't get to see the mess in the middle. And so when you're making a mess out of your process, you feel like you're the only only one and there's something wrong with you. But that's just not the case. Yeah, I, I find when I listen to the gurus now, when I listen to people who have either done scientific study, they've done research, or they've just been around the block enough that they've got something important to say, I often buy the message of the reason that the problem exists, but I almost never buy their solution. And I know I'm just speaking in, in generalities, and that's probably hard to hard to follow, but um, I think there's a lot of people out there that have done really good work in diagnosing the reason that um, relationships struggle and suffer. Uh, but then when they... You know, they talk about it for an hour, and the last three minutes of the hour, they're like, so you just got to communicate better. Okay, everybody got it? Okay, bye now. I'm like, well, you reckon, you know, you're better at recognizing the problem than anyone I've ever heard talk about this. But your solution's full of shit just like everybody else's is, because it's messy. You're right. Yeah. All right. This was great. Anything we're leaving out? I don't think so. Didn't think... You want to add? I would just add, if you're early into sobriety, um, therapist told me once, just you're at the bottom of the mountain, you can't see the top, and you just have to trust yourself that eventually you'll be able to see that top and things will change. And I'm, ironically, I think that's where we are as a couple as well at the moment. Yeah. That's, yeah. Well, trust. Well, we'll be there for a water break for you guys. We'll be on the mountain. We're at a false summit ourselves. Yeah, I was going to say, I was gonna say <laughs> I'm not claiming that we're at the top, that's for sure. But we'll be there with the water break for you. That's wise advice. Mm-hmm. We're credit that to you, Andy, when I repeat it over and over now. <laughs> Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to soberevolution.org. For my wife Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.